Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Welcome everyone. Um, we are going to go around the same way. So. so my name is Warren. Krisha. Jack. My name is Stephen. Jerry. Clint. Susan. Jack. Tony. I'm Richard. Greg. I'm Grant. I'm Kevin. I'm Richard. Alright. Um, so, is there anyone here for the first time? Once again. On his own? Okay. Um, oh, we have a hand up. Richard. Oh, we do? Okay. Go ahead, Richard. Say hello. Hi, my name is Richard. Hi, Richard. Welcome. Um, we, so, um, in that case, I'll introduce our speaker today, uh, uh, Devin Berry. So, um, Devin Berry has been practicing inside meditation since 1999. He regularly teaches at the Inside Meditation Society. Devin has undertaken many periods of silent long-term retreat practice. He's a community teacher at the Bay Meditation Center in Oakland where he co-founded both the Teen and Men of Color Summers. Devin recently relocated to Western Massachusetts from the San Francisco Bay Area. He is deeply committed to the personal and collective liberation of marginalized communities, knowing that the integration of reflection and insight, clarity and wisdom give rise to wise action. Thank you, Devin. Thank you. Thank you. How's my sound? You guys able to hear me okay? Great. Good to be with you all. I just I just realized once I signed on and, and saw a few people in person, I just got back and counted a few days ago, but I, I didn't even stop to think that this could possibly be in person as well. And, you know, I think we've all gotten so used to being on Zoom. So, um, yeah, good to see that there's uh, some, some in-person things happening as well, or hybrid. Um, so I will offer some reflections on... Uh, samadhi, and I'll give you a little definition of, of, of what that is in a bit, but I wanted to start with something that's directly from the teachings of the Buddha, directly from the suttas in regards to samadhi. Having seen oneself overcome the five impediments to calmness of mind, to stillness, joy arises within one. From feeling joy, there is a quiet elation with one's mind elated, one's body becomes peaceful. Being with the peacefulness of one's body causes an experience of profound happiness. One's consciousness experiencing such happiness enters samadhi. So as I said, I'll offer some re reflections on samadhi and, and really um, s simple ways to look at it and develop samadhi every day. Because oftentimes when we talk about it, we're, we're talking in sort of this long retreat or intensive practice format. But, and really this is 
a brief overview that's really focusing on the everyday things that help us to create these conditions with the understanding that the Buddhist teachings are based on movement towards what in Buddhist cosmology is called the wholesome and to the degree to which we do what's skillful, what's ethically wholesome, it leads to a sense of being whole and not fragmented, a sense of being uh, inclusive with ourselves rather than holding things at bay, um, a sense of the body, heart, and mind actually in harmony and a part of nature rather than separate from And from my own, uh, I would say from my own exploration of, of this particular practice or meditation in, in general, it, it, it's the depth and the depth, richness and, and, and power that the mind contains within itself is actually attainable. We have, we all have the capacity to know this mind um, through steady meditation practice. A number of you are long, long, long time practitioners, and this unified mind is what actually leads to what. Uh, is described in the Buddhist text as the highest happiness, the deepest satisfaction and fulfillment, right? And that's something, of course, we experience for ourselves and we, we, we determine for ourselves as well. So samadhi, samadhi, S-A-M-A-H-D-I, is a Pali word, Pali being the vernacular, um, thought to be uh, um, spoken at the time of the Buddha, really means this gathering or bringing together this unifying the mind and placing its awareness upon a particular object or to put or place body, heart, and mind together. So cultivating samadhi brings about peace of mind or some peace of mind as it reduces all of the wanderings of the mind, right? The wanderings of the mind that you probably experience in meditation practice or throughout your day. It's a quality of mind that otherwise isn't really easily accessible in today's world where essentially this, our collective promotion of, of consumption, overconsumption, misinformation, hatred, all these manifestations of what the Buddha called the three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion. So in the development or cultivation of samadhi, it's the aiming of attention and the sustaining of mindfulness as we collect the mind. When we collect the mind, it becomes steady, gathered, pliable, malleable, unbothered, soft, receptive. And this is all what is meant uh, by samadhi as I understand it and as I experience it. And samadhi isn't something that's branded, isn't something that is exclusive to Buddhist practice, right? Samadhi itself is a Sanskrit word, so it's, you know, was used by the Jains, used by Hindus, um, used in yogic traditions. So samadhi isn't new. There's always been this, this idea, or there always has been unification of mind, gatheredness, or concentration. Concentration is typically uh, how samadhi used to be translated, but um, I actually prefer this gatheredness of mind or unification of mind or stillness, because when we think of, uh, when I think of concentration, usually as it's been in my own conditioning, it's around uh honing in on something, this one-pointedness that actually contains a lot of tension and, and tightness and, and perfection. So that's not necessarily what it's, samadhi is really getting at. Most ancient cultures have had shamans, healers, or you know, various people who use mental powers to facilitate healing, access different realms, get in touch with spirits, the animal world, past lives, etc. 
and they access these powers through techniques like mantras, dance, drumming, chanting, you know, all of these various things that can provide a strong focus for samadhi, concentration. And we can see some of this in some of the everyday things that I actually like to, to point to often one would just be like a tea meditation that's used in the Thich Nhat Hanh community, right? It's, it's, it's uh, feeling the texture of the cup, the warmth of the tea itself, the warmth as it, as it goes down the throat, the, the saliva glands that, that begin to kick up as you smell good food, that sort of thing. Being absorbed in a good book, whether it's hard copy or audio, walking and getting a sense of rhythm of the steps and the breath, listening to music, listening to music being one of my favorite. And I mentioned this almost, I can find a way to bring that into almost anything because I think it's, it's a lovely way to begin to create the conditions for samadhi, to create the conditions for settling the mind a bit. So in music itself, whether you're listening to Jazz, rock, blues, doesn't matter. Bluegrass is something that will, will allow you to, say, track an instrument or track a voice, voice being an instrument as well. Through a song, you can intentionally listen to something and track a particular instrument in it. And that actually brings about, or can bring about, a good amount of focus and settling of the mind. And all of these things have factors of samadhi, right? Being absorbed in a good book, uh, has that quality of samadhi listening to music in a particular way, which can tune us into this quality. Um, drumming, working with the hands, um, lap swimmers, running, canoeing, hiking. Now, to be clear, right, before I get myself in trouble with all of my other teachers, none of these are insight meditation practices. These are not going to lead to, to what the Buddhists call, uh, um, enlightenment. And yet, these are, practices that all contain the same elements that are necessary for building a gathered mind that allow for stillness to be there. These are all activities that, uh, what they have in common, right? There's a degree of pleasantness there. There's a degree of pleasure there. There's a degree of settling the mind. We become energized because of these things. The experience itself is enjoyable. There's curiosity and interest. Energy is aroused. So we can think of it in pop psychology, the idea of flow states or um, athletes being in the zone where all the game, you know, baseball or basketball or whatever it is, slows runners. Everything around them slows down while they're in the zone. They almost become stronger and faster because of it. And all that's really needed for that, right? There's an object to connect to or an object to connect with and sustaining attention on that object. That's it. Mindfulness, which is usually what we talk about, is, you know, the other hand, right? These are two hands washing and holding each other. Mindfulness can be seen as a tool that leads to the development of a quality of concentration that places us right in the flow of an awakened life, of being present. And this is the quality of samadhi that's spoken about when the Buddha talks about the seven factors of awakening or the five spiritual faculties or various other things in the Buddhist cosmology list. And one of the things I found really interesting about samadhi is the proximate cause of samadhi is gladness. 
And that should be noted and remembered and recalled over and over and over again, because that points to where I was talking about concentration before, this tension and tightness that we usually think of. Samadhi is not about, it's not about how we've come to think about concentration, bearing down, tightness, tension, effort, perfection. It's about opening, relaxing, letting go, not contending with the present moment. And I want to read something that, that my, my mentor and teacher, uh, a couple of things that actually that he wrote about in regards to samadhi. And this one particularly looks at samadhi as a, uh, the, the proximate cause being gladness, or joy, as he says. Receiving joy is another way to say enjoyment, and samadhi is the act of refined enjoyment. It is based in skillfulness. It is the careful collecting of oneself into the joy of the present moment. Joyfulness means there's no fear, there's no tension, there's no ought to. There isn't anything that we have to do about it. It just is. This is Joseph Goldstein. We establish some stability and focus in our mind and see which elements in it lead to greater peace and which to greater suffering. All of it, both the peace and the suffering, happen naturally and lawfully. Freedom lies in the wisdom to choose. And to that point, it's our wholehearted intention and care that we bring to, say, Brahma-Bahara practices, metta, compassion, those sort of things, which is a really great place to cultivate samadhi. Gratitude and mudita practices are quite a wonderful way to keep the mind oriented towards unification of mind. And I may have told the story here before. I've told it in a lot of other contexts, but it's, it's always worth sharing again. It's um, a person that who I've seen some of the really beautiful, strong practice with a lot of samadhi and a very sharp, clear mind was a man that I had a chance to work with years ago. He's incarcerated, and it's been 37 years in uh, maximum facility. 23 hours locked up, locked up, one hour out for physical exercise. And he used his time very well. And, and as he would say, he was using his time to work on his own karma, to reorient his, to reorient, reorient this very troubled mind, is, is paraphrasing him. And I worked with him on something called the Anapanasati Sutta. The Anapanasati Sutta is the sutta that talks about, where the Buddha talks about the full awareness of breathing. It's one of the main, one of the first, uh, the suttas. And he would just memorize, or he did just memorize this entire thing through conversations that I had with him because we weren't able to see each other at first. It was all, you know, initially writing back and forth and then via phone call. So him memorizing this, and he wholeheartedly took up the practice. And the practice of the Anapanasati itself is 16 steps, and these are 16 steps looking at our breathing. So breathing in a long breath, knowing that you're breathing in a long breath, and etc. it's short breath, and all of those things, and being able to calm the mind, knowing that you're calm the mind, sitting and knowing that you're sitting. And so a conversation with him basically would look like, you know, I would, when I would, uh, or when he would call, I'd get to collect call, and, you know, he would just start in immediately. There was very little uh, personal things going on. It was all about this sutta that he was memorizing and, 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 and taking to heart and mind. And he would say, um, I heard these words of the Buddha at one time when he was staying at Savanti in Jatja's Grove, Anapta Pendika's Park. 
with many well-known and accomplished disciples, there was, and he would go on to name all the like 20 or 30 some uh, monks that were there. And it seems like just the memorization, but memorizing that and memorizing and knowing those 16 steps created an incredibly sharp mind, an incredibly malleable mind that really did begin to reset his own nervous system, really did begin to orient his mind towards um, peace, towards being at peace with himself. And it was one of the more, was definitely one of the more lovely and profound expressions of a practice that I've ever witnessed. And I would always ask him, you know, how he was able to do this and keep it up. On one hand, right, my mind thinks, well, dude, you're locked up for 23 hours a day. You got nothing else to do. You ought to be able to do this, right? On one one hand, that's me. There's a little bit of a pessimistic mind. So, right, this is me doing meditation practice to cut through my own pessimistic mind also. Um, And he would offer me this. So the beauty that I long for is what actually keeps me strong, keeps me going. All of this that he had never had, that he had never experienced, that wasn't in his own condition, that wasn't in his own background, um, was what was keeping him doing this. And oftentimes people say that, you know, cultivating something like samadhi, how is that relevant to today, or, you know, what can I possibly do with any of this? So cultivating samadhi, for me, is actually something that's quite relevant today, as it's, um, a really powerful tool to work with and to experience true rest, like actually resting and having rested from this world on fire. And developing samadhi allows us to access deeper states of calm that really can shine a light on unease in our life, dis-ease, layers of agitation, makes us more likely to spot stress as we begin to naturally incline towards contentment or not being entangled. It's samadhi, developing samadhi in this way is something that actually cuts through quick temper and anger. And it's really something that you have to experience for yourself, right? Actually describing it really barely does it any justice at all. It's one of those things where the Buddha talked about bhavanamayapanya, wisdom gained through direct experience. It is the direct experience of doing this where you actually get to see, right? You can doubt it all, and I can tell you about it all, and none of it's going to make any sense unless you actually give it a shot. I wanted to tell you there are these three progressive stages uh, of meditation of calm that the Buddha uh, talks about through analogies and, and, and similes. And I'm sort of we'll, 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 we'll paraphrase it because some of them are, are quite long, and so I, I don't want to give you the, the fullness of all of them. And all of these analogies look at samadhi. They all all the knowledge. And it's interesting because I realized too that all of these analogies have to do with water, where water is the stand-in for uh, the mind or awareness. And the first is water being sprinkled into flour. And the water gets folded into the flour and it becomes dough to make bread. And what's important is that the water that's sprinkled in gets kneaded and spread out evenly throughout the dough so that the flour can hold together. The flour being the body and the water, the awareness or mind. We bring them together so that awareness is absorbed throughout the body. So body and mind are in the same place at the same time. If the mind absorbs into the body, 
is present for the breathing, say, the expanding and contracting, then the mind is in the same place at the same time as the body. Body and mind unite and feelings of wholesomeness, gladness, and relief arise. And this just isn't a concept or an idea, right? This, I mean, if you look at many of the teachings that they are, it's a roadmap. These are direct instructions that you can try. The contact and placing of attention somewhere like breathing, keeping it there gently, not forcing it or holding it, steady but gently kneading, working it softly again and again as the mind wanders off. That's the sprinkling of awareness into our body, into our breathing. A rhythm, a gentle reconnecting of coming back, applying ourselves over and over and over again with every inhale and exhale. Slowly penetrating awareness into the whole experience of breathing. And then there's this arising of relief from not being preoccupied, ruminating, distracted. And then there's the arising of gladness along with the relief. And the second analogy that he uses, right, this next deeper state of, of, of calm is, is there's this degree of calm that's there. So that degree of calm is like a mountain lake that has an underwater spring that flows through it. Awareness has become stable at this point, expansive, and rest with the body and mind, not so distinct right now because they've come together, or there's a coming together. And we begin to feel the nourishment of sensing body and awareness and body and mind being together. There's a welling up of further happiness and joy as more and more samadhi is developed. And this inner nourishment, this goodness that's there, this samadhi is like a spring going forth and flowing. Continued on with that, the third analogy, an even deeper state of, of, of uh, calm, is a sense of flow and vitality that settles into um, this deep, satisfying peacefulness. And this analogy um, is being a still bright, mirror-like mountain lake that's unmoved with lotuses growing in it, meaning it's not this cold mountain lake, but something that's temperate, something that we can skinny dip in, something that's very comfortable to be in with the many different colored lotus flowers growing all over it, submerged and floating, calm, still, and all knowing within the calmness that's touched by the water of awareness. And all of this is, that points to initially there's some work in, in, in the very beginning, right? Needing the dose, sprinkling awareness, as if initially there's work there. And then there's a little work, and this, there's actually a lot less work with no work. It's almost effortlessly as we're carried by the flow, and the flow slows, and we're placed in a place of really deep reassurance and confidence and faith and equanimity. And some of those states are the ones that keep people coming back. Those are the ones that send people to retreat. Those are the ones that have people diving further and further into practice. And in these states, all of these progressive states, whether it's the first or the second or the third combination of all of them, we begin to actually reset the nervous system. We fill the heart. And there's relief over and over and over again as we really begin to see and experience and have insights related to, or knowing that none of this is actually dependent on the world being just or right or fixed. 
it becomes a profound resource from which we can enter back into the world in a really wonderful way with some integrity, with some peace, with some discernment, understanding, and wisdom. So I just, you know, the reason for me actually even wanted to talk about any of this is I, I feel quite fortunate I was able to just, just coming off um, a little over two and a half months of retreat and mm, it feels like I actually got the, the, the deep rest of peace of mind that I desperately needed and I don't even know that I needed that much until I got there and I had seven days of vacation and I was in the retreat um, and dirty little secret, secret typically how I, how I start my retreat like I said, you know, I've been practicing since 1999 and almost every single retreat that I go to, I'm happy to get to the retreat. But the first day that I'm on retreat typically is me. Well, you will rarely see me out in that on the first day of the retreat. I'm usually hiding in my room with my phone and headphones plugged into it. So on this most recent retreat, that's what I did on the first day. With my headphones plugged into my phone. And I proceeded to watch five hours of Star Trek episodes. (laughs) And this has like happened for years and years and years and years and years. I'm going to get to the meditation. The meditation is going to happen, but it's almost like I I just, I got to be bad. I need to be bad. (laughs) And so I'm bad. Not bad in the way I was bad in the 20s. That that was pretty unhealthy and toxic. This is a little different. So in doing that, I had exhausted myself completely and then I realized just how much um, really this sort of I guess how do you describe this that COVID undertow the COVID undertow that I think we all have in have experienced that and all the intersecting various daily stresses and traumas that, that we all experience they're not unique to me they're not unique to Devin they're not unique to me as a man, they're not unique to me as a black person, on and on and on. These are all things that we all experience. And my exploration and the result and fruits of this practice were really reason enough to, to, for me to get back to truly cultivating samadhi in a more formal and informal way and to talk to you about it. It felt like I got reacquainted with the level of calm and tranquility that I had only that I only ever experienced through the Buddha's Dharma, even if I want to leave, even if I never want to meditate, which there are plenty of times when I don't want to. There's a deep understanding that, again, there's a level of calm and tranquility that I only ever experience through the practice. And I think at some point, um, going back to spring of 2020, right, the first lockdowns, I realized that I was just kind of adding more and more stones to the well, just, you know, my uh, reserve of any uh, sanity, peace of mind, anything at all. I was just adding these agitations from all these various stresses that were there. And there just wasn't any cool water to nourish to me to have any equanimity in, in the well at all. I was overwhelmed with a lot of family stuff, work stuff, financial stuff. It was all there. So... I couldn't go on retreat at that time, right? I couldn't do anything. So I decided to take on um, cultivating the conditions for samadhi so that I could get a sense of feel some of that at home and so that I would also uh, be able to bring those with me into retreat. 
So much of what I did was some, some of those everyday tools that I talked about. Um, well, I didn't run with bad knees. I can't run. I didn't swim because I could barely swim. So I walked. Uh, I did some gardening. Uh, the tea meditations. I was listening to music. And these were things that I did daily. And what's important is that you, uh, uh, Qigong, what's important is that you actually bring uh, the same energy, the same efforts, the same approach that I bring to my sitting practice. So this, the, I mean, the exact same energy that I bring when I sit to do a concentration practice or a heart practice, any of those, that is the same energy that I brought to those various exercises. And I'm not going to tell you every single time I did that, but I was quite intentional about it. And what I noticed, because I started to track those things, because I'm wanting to, you know, to see if I can have a little bit more than anecdotal evidence or have my own anecdotal evidence to be able to track these things. And what I did notice is that over the course of several months with all of these things going on in the world is that it greatly reduced my blood pressure, it greatly reduced my resting heart rate, and my nervous system ratcheted down to a level that I could actually feel sometimes embodied, sometimes comfortable in my skin, sometimes I was kind and gentle, wishing goodwill for myself and others around me. And it was directly from doing these practices. I didn't give up the meditation practice, but at times, right, there was so much uh, anxiety, so much nervousness that it was really off my game in terms of the meditation practice, but all of these other things helped to create the conditions that were related to my meditation practice. Counting breaths was one, right? It's a beginning, what's always considered to be a beginning meditation practice to count breaths. Sometimes you'll, you know, where Whatever the tradition is across the Buddhist cosmology, there's an idea that uh, counting breaths helps to focus the mind. And it does, so it, it's something that you can do actually, you know, walking around anywhere you are. It doesn't have to be seated on a cushion. And so what I was doing oftentimes, a couple times a day, was counting down from 10. And the reason I would count down from 10 rather than counting up to 10 is because what I noticed is that my mind would go on autopilot if I was counting up 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. That was easy to do and I'd get lost. But if I was counting down, breathing in, breathing out, 10, breathing in, breathing out, 9, right? You're mentally, you know, giving a light mental note, counting the numbers down, keeps you from being on autopilot. And I would attempt to do 10 sets of 10, which is actually quite difficult to do. But getting closer and closer to be doing those 10 sets of 10 really helped to redirect the mind from rumination, from the obsession, all these other things that were going on. You know, I was sort of spinning out of stories with the potential for a little bit of depression, more, more depression, more depression. This helped to cut through that. And it keeps all of the, what we call it, the Buddhist cosmologies, the hindrances, all the hindrances are actually at bed. Because you're not going to be able to do both. Devin can't bitch and whine if he's counting down from 10, right? I'm either counting down from 10 or I'm bitching and whining, one or the other. One of those are happening. They're both not going to happen. So it's really interesting to see that this developing samadhi in this way is a great reset and does actually lead to a little bit of calm and more and more deepening states of calm. So while I was on this retreat, I was really working with... Um, 
some simple some simple instructions. Uh, first was the requisite watching five hours of Star Trek. I was there. I'd recommend that. Um, half jokingly, I would recommend that. Um, so I was dead set on really keeping it all very simple. So while I was there, I was in a, was a nature and bird uh, sanctuary in Hawaii. So the instructions that I was given, I had given myself and also working with a, a teacher who, who lives there on the property, was to listen to the external sounds. Ocean breeze, the birds, trees going back and forth, waking and falling asleep with the natural light, walking, coordinating breath and steps into rhythm. So from this walking in nature, right, it's 70, 75 degrees, I could actually walk barefoot there, and, you know, the days were pretty um, uh, slow and easy, and there was a, a lot of rain, but at 70 degrees, the rain, you know, isn't a problem then, right? It falls on you, it's wet, it evaporates. And so at some point, then listening to the rain literally became the meditation instruction that I was using. And it was actually one of the, the deepest practices, the practice periods that I experienced. It, it, it pulled up these memories of, 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 I used to teach kindergarten at one point in time. It pulled up all these memories and, and songs that, um, that I used to read or, or teach to the kids. Um, and mostly I was using them then to uh, hopefully lull them to sleep so I could have a break. <laughs> sort of nap time to them, but it was also, it was actually quite intentional this lull or the nap time keep going. And w- what I found is that I was essentially singing these songs to myself that really allowed me to slow myself and begin to settle me. And this is, this is what it was. I actually I wrote two notes from it. And I don't know if this is exactly what I used then or even where it came from, but I sort of edited and played with it for the kids. So this is what I was doing, sitting there. Listen to the rain. The whisper of the rain, the sloth, the soft, slow sprinkle, the drip drop tinkle, the first wet whisper, the singing of rain, the tiptoe pitter patter, splish splash splatter, the steady sound of roaring pouring rain, the hurly burly topsy turvy lashing gnashing teeth of rain. The lightning flashing, thunder crashing, sounding, pounding, roaring rain, leaving the playground a muddle, mishy, mushy, muddle, puddle. Listen to the quietude, the silence, and the solitude, dripping, dropping, slowly stopping. Ah, the fresh, wet, silent rain. So this was one that I sort of committed to memory, and I would offer this over and over and over again. Right? It's pretty wacky. Right? Out of my everyday life, it's not like I'd be running around singing the song, but I'm in Hawaii, 75 degrees, it's 200 some acres, there's nobody else there running around half naked, happy to sing this song. <laughs> Chill out. <laughs> so along with this, then my mindfulness of breathing, right? All these other instructions that we think we need to know, that we have to know, everything, particularly when you're in nature, you're able to walk around and hike 
then there's a rhythm that happens, right? If you're hiking, you're backpacking, you're doing any of that, then there has to be a rhythm that's there, and that's what keeps you going. And I realized that the mindfulness of breathing in these rhythmic patterns, these rhythmic things that I was doing, mirrors and aligns with the natural world at some point. And in that, there's a great exhale of everything that had been weighing heavily on me, weighing heavily on heart and mind. And then at some point, I remember just stopping, and there were just either complete and total, feel like an uppouring of rage coming out, and tears as I realized I was finally able to just let it all go. And so what happens at the end of this, right? The habits of mind begin to be weakened. Neural pathways of kindness, gratitude, metta, compassion, equanimity get stronger, and they provide conditions for samadhi to arise naturally, even effortlessly, as in the analogies at some point, effortlessly. The mind becomes quite sharp, becomes pliable, well-rested, deeper and deeper states, and eventually deep absorption of the jhanas, what we call the jhana stage, which is the ultimate practice that I was headed to do there, happened. And there was something that I found that Octavio Paz, the late poet Octavio Paz wrote that mirrors that um, experience that I had of being there after a while. I want to share it with you. I heard my blood singing in its prison and the sea sang with a murmur of light. One by one, the walls gave way. All of the doors were broken down and the sun came bursting through my forehead and it tore apart my closed lids, cut loose my being from its wrapper and pulled me out of myself to wake me from this animal sleep and its centuries of stone. I heard my blood singing in its prison and the sea sang with a murmur. One by one, the walls gave way. All of the doors were broken down and the sun came bursting through my forehead and it tore apart my closed lids. It cut loose my being from its wrapper and pulled me out of myself to wake me from this animal sleep and its centuries of scum. So that wasn't a poem about meditation and yet it um, really spoke to these simple and everyday practices that really allowed me to allow us to unjam the frequency that has entranced us all. This is from John O'Donoghue's fluent. I would love to live like a, I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its unfolding. Carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its un, own unfolding. So it feels like at some point there was a little bit of a peace, a little bit of steadiness, a little bit of settledness, and I was just carried along. And energy and momentum and curiosity came about from just seeing what was there in front of me, seeing what was possible there. So I want to leave it there. I'm not sure. I'm not not sure how much time, but I would.
actually uh, hopefully haven't used all the time. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious to, to hear from folks. Uh, comments, questions, concerns. Am I out of my damn mind? Does this make sense? Any of that. I, I see a couple of hands. I, I think I see Chris first and then April. Uh, great. Thanks so much, Devin. That was a great talk. Um, do tell those first days of the meditation retreats in your room watching Star Trek. My word. That's, <laughs> I've worked on my own process. It's not Star Trek, though. Star Trek can be like a little bit of cabin for me at times. Um, this alchemy of Anapanasati and Samadhi, I've just been revisiting it probably for my four millionth time. I, but actually as sort of a, a practice, and specifically using Anapanasati in the 32 parts of the body to sort of access that. And just recently I started seeing the nimta, the light that has been described, not trying to get there and not trying to grab onto it. And it's been really exciting because it's really sort of centering me in a really new healing way. I mean, the, the what you say, COVID undertow Republican upper undertow. This whole pastor half this is going to die. Any little remedy, any little joy, any little feeling state that I can tag on to now and hold and bring bring to my day is just really delightful. And I'm just going to offer out. Most recently, I started swimming again. Um, swimming pool that was closed for a year and a half. But I'm not much of a swimmer. I just put a belt on and I run. I don't asthma. It just doesn't work for me. And I've actually started this process where right when I'm taking my clothes off and putting my little outfit on and sort of doing my sort of wants in there in the pool, I head over to, if it's if I'm lucky, I head over to the deep end of the pool. And if it's empty, I take a little moment and then I jump in like kind of like a backward harpoon and go all the way to the bottom of the pool. And then I slowly float up and there's just like bubbles. And it's like I'm coming back to and I'm just using it and then coming out and it's maybe only three or four seconds but it's like the hallelujah moment it's a baptism and that feeling state I'm now taking through my day and I sort of try to access that or don't even try I just say when the feelings I need a little medicine right now I think of that state and it just really draws me back to that samadhi that deep unification so thanks so much for your talk beautiful thank you Chris that's exactly I mean it's really it's it's, it's trying to use any and all of those things to carry you throughout the day. Where oftentimes we want one or the other, or we see our meditation practice over here and all those other things is over here as being separate. If I don't have a meditation practice or I can't do it, then everything has gone wrong. If you can't get to the meditation practice, there are a number of things that we can do. And what you're talking about with, with the 32 parts of the body and Anapanasata being able to actually do those at home and do those enough so that you do experience the nimitta and move more and more to this direction of, 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 of some, of, of a profound amount of peace and calm is accessible at home. It is accessible by ourselves. It is accessible without a teacher. Accessible without a retreat. Those things are possible. It's not always easy, but it's possible. Thank you for, for, for pointing to that for sure. Thank you. Yeah. Abel, I see Abel next. Yeah, hello. Um, hello. Thank you for your talk. Also, it's uh, really helpful. And I also want to thank you for uh, 
listing an apartment, and showing your full practice, um, kind of like the difficulties, the five hours of Star Trek, and then the personal challenges that you have. Um, kind of, a, it's giving you the phrase, uh, showing us war to know, you know, the whole practice. And, um, the reason I like it is because it makes it very relevant for me as a kind of a baby Buddhist to understand uh, other people's full practice. And uh, that, that's really it. Thank you for showing the entirety of your practice and those challenges. Absolutely. You will, you know, hey, if someone had, had offered, hey, actually, I, I really wish, I mean, I do it because I really wish someone had offered me those sort of things, that baby Buddhist, Buddha cub, that would have been incredibly um, helpful. And, you know, I think you should really side-eye <laughs> teachers and things, you know, giving you instructions and giving you uh, beautiful, beautiful, wonder, wonderful teachings and things directly from the Buddha, and not giving you the fullness because it's that perfection does not exist. Perfection does not exist. You know, I thought my teachers didn't get angry, didn't get upset that they were perfect. They'd be able to help me with everything because that's what oftentimes was presented. It's a load of us, and we all actually know it. I just actually say it. So, yeah, am I like, am I proud of my watching five hours of Star Trek in the first day of retreat? No, I actually think it's absurd and, and funny, and it's actually true. That's what happens, right? There's the shame that goes with that. I shouldn't be doing this. And then it happens. I enjoy it, and then I move on, right? It's all practice. Nothing is separate from your practice. Nothing. Yeah. Hey, Jim, this is Jeff. Um, thank hey, you for Jeff. Uh, your talk. I can really appreciate your enthusiasm on the heels of your retreat. Um, I also really liked what you said about the gathering and sustaining our attention in a way that brings our body, mind, and heart into alignment. Um, so thank you for a great talk. Thanks. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Good to see you again, Jeff. That gathering and that, that, that uh, aiming and sustaining or in, in the, the Pali words are vitaka and vichara. So it's aiming something. So when we're, um, you know, offering the, the phrases in, in metta, right? We're, we're aiming. And in doing the phrases, you are aiming. You're seeing the other person through the phrases. You're aiming for the and looking to sustain them. Same with, with our breathing, as we're you know the warmer, cool air coming from the nostrils. That is aiming to know that experience and then staying with the rhythms and that. So the aiming, sustaining allows for the samadhi to be built, and that's all we're doing with any of the various insight practices for sure. Is aiming and sustaining, aiming and sustaining. Thank you, uh, Tom. Tom. Hey Devin, thank you so much for a great talk. Um, there was so much uh, wonderful teaching in there, so um, I don't want you to think that the only thing I pulled away from it was this. What was the name of that childhood song about the rain? Because it's so poetic. I want to look at yeah. the lyrics. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have it on my notes here. I hope I think I put the last name. And I put right. So it was so written by two guys. At least the last time that I looked it up was Bill Martin Jr. And the other guy's name is John. I'm sure I spelled this wrong. John 
Archibald, but I have A-R-C-H-A-N-B-A-U-L-T, Bill Martin and John Archibald. And it doesn't actually have a name. Um, there were, yeah, it was a words for a children's song, and then I started to, to edit them and, and play around with them from there. Okay. Thank okay. you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, I think you should be able to find it from there. So I think we have time for one more question. And if that's the only thing that you took from it, Tom, that's absolutely fine and helpful. Well, thank you all very much. And, and again, if there's any um, comments, concerns about anything that I said, you can always email me. It's my first and last name, D-E-B-I-N-B-E-R-R-Y at gmail.com. I'm happy to um, answer you, explain, and engage with you there. And yeah, hopefully next time I can be in person with you all. I'm actually not, not far away. So yeah, looking forward to seeing you all again. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dana. Thank you. Um, so, Dana is the byword for generosity, um, and we count on your generosity uh, to uh, to cover the cost of GDF. Um, so, we I will go around with the tenable. I think there will be a PayPal link on the Zoom uh, for those that are participating online. Um, and are there any are there any announcements for today? Yes, I want to I want to remind people that we have an account at Community Thrift, 17th in Valencia. If you have anything that no longer serves you, you can donate it there. Just be sure to let them know it's for GDF because we get a couple hundred dollars plus every four months. So it's actually a very great way to practice Donna in a different way. If it supports GDF and all our various programs. So. Thank you, Richard. And Cass. Um, my name's Cass, I'm your host today, um, and I'm looking forward to my next retreat because I'm going to start with five hours of Let's see, there's some uh, vegan treats, there's some vegan cookies out on the, um, on the credenzas, and um, I apologize for the distracting noise of preparing uh, those, putting them out. Um, there's hot water for tea. If you have some tea, put your cup in the sink afterwards and I'll uh, take care of it. Um, I will be coming around with the Donna Bowl and um, your generosity would be greatly appreciated. It helps pay for the, the center and uh, hopefully the Larkin Street dinners will be able to uh, engage in um, providing those for the homeless youth again, and uh, it also provides time for our speakers. Um, is there anything else? There probably is, and I'll mention it out of the uh, social app. So please stay and enjoy the fellowship of the Sangha now that we're able to get together. Oh, yes. I yes. just wanted to thank you for uh, stepping up and uh, joining our ranks and uh, being a facilitator. 
Thank you for saying that, Dad. <laughs> yes, please. Hi, this is, I'm Greg. I have a couple announcements that aren't directly related to the Sangha, but are related to the spirituality that comes with music, that Devin was talking about. One is, um, I'm losing my space where I kept my childhood baby grand sign my piano for 15 years. So if anybody knows of a space, a small room somewhere with a reasonable rent, hopefully within two miles of Pacific Heights. This one was two blocks from my house, so. Um, yeah, so please let me know. And the other thing is I'm in Bolivian Men's Chorus and our holiday concerts are coming up. And you can find information at ggmc.org and it will be in person. And I have little cards if the people here want a reminder. Jack. Donna also supports the GBF newsletter, and I'd like to encourage in-person people who can do that in, in the Bay Area to come next week. Even though it's Thanksgiving um, weekend, we'll be processing the 300 newsletters that we send out, and so I encourage people to, to come. So after the sitting, we can gather together and process them and stamp them and all that stuff together. Thank you. I'm in charge of a dinner in my neighborhood in the Hate, and it's on December 24th. And if anyone's interested in contributing, you could talk to me outside. The other thing I want to ask everyone did we ever do the land acknowledgement thing? It's in, uh, you know, for Native people. I was a few minutes late, I think, so. Um, yeah, you know, it's just to, you know, it's Thanksgiving. I just thought I would bring it up. Oh. No, we haven't done that. Okay. Well, we talked about it in the uh, group where we read the um, White Fragility. We talked about it, um, David Hunt. We, so anyway, um, just a thought. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I have an announcement. Go ahead. Okay. Hi, um, we've finished, pro uh, we've finished uh, scheduling the programming. I'm, I'm helping with programming speakers in the future, and we've finished for this next quarter through February, so we're now working on March, April, May, and into the future. Again, if you folks know of someone you'd like to bring add-on that's never spoken before or someone that has spoken before that you'd like to encourage to come back, please let us know if it's Chris or Jeff or Jerry, any one of us know, and we'll try to contact that person for you. Thanks. Um, I'll say one more thing. Just we talked about it before the uh, the sit today. That GBF needs a laptop, an iPad, and a Yeti mic for our setup every week. So if anybody has an extra used laptop or iPad that you want to donate, then let's know. Then we don't have to buy it. Thank you. Oh, yes. Can I just say uh, we also need um, some people to volunteer as hosts? It involves um, taking responsibility just once every uh, few months to provide treats and uh, just welcome people to the uh, So we need two or three more to fill out the schedule. So if anybody's willing to do that, it's a great service. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you, guys. Um, 
Stefan, I'd like to check with you if you'd like to uh, do the dedication of merits for us. Okay. Sure, absolutely. Thank you. We're gonna gather around the circle here, to. and then we'll yeah, then we'll start. With To, to all of you that helped to make this possible, to make GBF possible, to that have continued over the years, uh, to each of us and our friends and family, from those that we are estranged from, from those uh, recently passed. Um, I'd like to dedicate the merit to the children around this city. Hopefully, folks are, are able to be housed and fed and have what they need. Um, and may the merits of this practice benefit all beings and bring peace. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please Subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.